Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Austin McCormick here, and once again, I have my brother, Jimmy Johnson. And today, we're going to be talking about preaching through the book of Esther, which Jimmy has recently done. And if you're not a pastor or someone who regularly preaches, we still think that this conversation will be encouraging to you. We know that many people have been using the Robert Murray McShane uh, reading plan throughout the year to read the Bible in one year. If you're not familiar with that reading plan, uh, you read two chapters in the morning and two chapters in the evening to read through the entire Bible in one year. And um, today begins chapter one of the book of Esther as we're recording this. So as this releases tomorrow, you'll be reading chapter two of the book of Esther if you are using that plan. So if you are, we hope this conversation is profitable to you. And if you're going to preach through the book of Esther, uh, again, we hope this is profitable for you. But Jimmy, uh, just to jump into the topic, what were um, some of the reasons that led you to preach through the book of Esther as you uh, did this for your church? So last time we talked about preaching, both Austin, you and I were both preaching through the book of Mark. And I, about 10 weeks ago or a little bit more, had finished probably about 13 or 14 weeks ago, I had finished Mark and and wasn't exactly sure where to go after that. And I'd been praying about it. I knew that I wanted to preach my book because that's just kind of my mode of operation. Um, I, I alternate um, Testament, New Testament, typically. That's not a rigid rule. But anyways, as I was praying, as I was thinking about it, I asked some people what, what books they would like to, to hear um, expounded. And one person I asked was my wife, and she gave me a few different books. And one of them was Esther, and I asked a few other people, and they, they also mentioned Esther. So having read the book several times I, I, and prayed about it, it I was pretty convinced that that's, that's where I needed to go. So I selected it and got to work on deep study and outlining and, and things like that. And then we, we buckled down and we went through it. Well, speaking of outlining, that helps us transition to um, the next question. So I'm curious to know, as you preach through Esther, how many sermons did you end up preaching? Uh, how did you divide the book, and why did you do it that way? So I preached 10 total sermons through the book of Esther. The first sermon was an introduction and overview. So in the text, doing systematic exposition, it was nine weeks of of preaching. Um and the reason I did it that way is because I know my people and I know how much they can they can handle in one sitting. Um, there were two different commentary or there was one commentary that recommended preaching three. <laughs> there was another one that recommended preaching four. 
And then I found one that recommended preaching five and I didn't listen to any of them um, just because I, I knew the amount that my people at my church could more easily digest, even though I do see some wisdom and moving quickly through because it's a narrative and it's telling one cohesive story. But I found that breaking it down into the nine sections that I did worked very, very well. And though there was some redundancy and points of application and things like that, those points of redundancy, I think, ended up being beneficial to to the congregation that I that I serve. Um, I mean, there are multiple ways that the book can be outlined. I mean, just like every Old Testament book, if you want to find a chiasm and in the the outline, you seem to be able to find a chiasm. Um, and in the case of Esther, it does seem to to work kind of naturally. I don't I don't know if that was the intent of the author, but it does appear to seem to have some sort of chiastic structure centering in on chapter six. Chapter six is is that pinnacle moment of of the book and it's somewhat unexpected what that is um and and i don't know if you'll ask me later but the pinnacle part of the book during that chiastic structure or just the structure of the book is the evening where the king couldn't sleep like that was the hinge point of of the entire direction and trajectory of what would happen in the book. That's where the grand reversals begin to take place. And it was a night in which no human actor was responsible for what took place um, in that chapter. But I want to get ahead of any of the other questions. We, we can flesh that out more later. But I, to make the question short or in a word, I preached 10 sermons, one of those being an overview, nine being going through the book. Excellent. Excellent. So yeah, let's just take the conversation in the direction that you were, you were bringing it and talk about some of the themes, uh, through the book of Esther, uh, more specifically as those that were, will preach through this book. What are some of the key preaching themes? So answer that question, however you'd like brother. So there are a lot of themes throughout the book that that can be drawn out but two of the most prominent ones and they're very interrelated is the themes of promise and providence so providence of course is god's most holy wise and and powerful governing and sustaining of all his creatures and their actions and and we see that throughout the book even though god's not named in the book there is clearly providence at work um god's working all things together according to the counsel of his own will for his glory and for the good of his people um where promise shows up is in esther chapter four um it's not it's very subtle um, way of appealing to it. But when Mordecai is petitioning Esther and trying to convince her to go before the king and mediate on behalf of her people, he, he says something kind of interesting. Um, he says that if she refuses to go, then salvation, and this is a paraphrase, I'm not quoting it directly, but if she refuses to go, then 
then salvation will come from another place, but destruction will be upon her and her household. And you know, that's very similar to what we hear told to Abraham. And after that, the people of Israel, those who bless you will be blessed and those who curse you will be cursed. And God had promised in the Abrahamic covenant that he would provide his people with a place. He would provide his people with protection. He would provide through them and to them a, a program of blessing. Um, and we see that in the book of Esther, he's keeping that promise. Where would salvation come from? Mordecai doesn't explicitly state, but the Jewish reader and now the Christian reader of it would be would quite obviously infer that the salvation would come ultimately from God. Um, so promise and, and providence being related to that, as I was alluding to earlier, the hinge point of the entire book is on chapter six. In chapter five, you have Esther go and she mediates on behalf of her people. She enters the court uninvited. The king extends his scepter and says he'll grant her up to half of her kingdom to make her request known. And she invites the king to a banquet. And, and that, that happens. There, there's the banquet and then and nothing really comes of it. She says, come to my next banquet. <laughs> and on the way out, Haman runs into Mordecai and, and is enraged at the fact, again, that Mordecai refuses to bow. And we see that, that he goes home, his wife and his friends help him conspire to build a pike of some sort on which to hang Mordecai and to go to the king and ask to do it that night which would be before the second banquet where, where Esther was going to intercede on behalf of her people. So the question begins, should begin to be raised in our mind, well, as we're reading it, well, if Haman's plans are carried out, Esther's not going to have time to intercede on his behalf and Haman's gonna hang on that, or Mordecai's gonna hang on that pike before Esther can even intercede for him. And that's what leads into chapter six. And we are told in chapter six at the very beginning, the ESV translates it, the king could not sleep, but a literal rendering is the king's sleep fled. The king's sleep ran away, we, we might say. And as I read that, it's like, what put the king's sleep to flight? And we don't know if he dreamed or something like that that kept him up. We, we aren't given privy to all the details, but there are numer numerous times in other parts of scripture where God intervenes the sleep of powerful men on behalf of his people. He, he does it to Abimelech. <laughs> he does it to Pharaoh. He does it to Nebuchadnezzar. And, and I would say that here God intervenes and does not allow the king to sleep. And it just so happens that, that in order to try and go to sleep, the king has the deeds, the record of good deeds read before him. And it just so happens that the man reading the deeds turned to Mordecai, who the king had just so happened to forget to reward 
for what Mordecai had done on him and forming a plan to kill the king. And all that happens. Like it just, the book presents it as it just so happened. And, you know, a few coincidences, we might be led to think, well, they're just very lucky. Um, as good theists, we would probably reject that. But perhaps someone reading it, we would say, wow, things are just working out. But it's like the amount and sheer amount of coincidences, particularly this one where the king couldn't fall asleep, point to this idea that there is some force in the background, some person in the background, working the events of the story, of the history, uh, going on in the book to the end which he desires, and that is the preservation of his people and the keeping of his promise. Because if Haman's wish had been carried through, the promised seed of the woman, the promised seed of Abraham, and the promised seed of David would never come. Because Haman had gotten the king or co-opted the king in making a decree to kill and annihilate all the Hebrews and their children. But because of this, what might seem to be an insignificant case of insomnia of the king, God's people were delivered. The very next day in chapter 6, you have the king wakes up, Haman's going to ask him if, if he can hang Mordecai, <laughs> and the king asks, who's in the court? And it's Haman. And the king goes in and he says, what should the king do or what should be done for the man who the king delights to honor? And Haman and all his pomp, of course, thinks he's talking about him. And he tells him to put him on the royal guard, put him on the royal steed, parade him around the city and say how great this guy is. And, and it just so happens that after Haman says that, he says, hey, Haman, you go do that for Mordecai. And Mordecai would be paraded around town and his greatness would be lauded by the man who desired to have him hanged on his gallows. And of course, the very next chapter of the second banquet, Haman's plot is spoiled as Esther reveals that Haman is the one who is hung on the gallows. And then to follow that in the 12th month, when Haman's plot was to come to fruition and the Jews were to be killed, destroyed, and annihilated. That's how the edict reads. We, we are told that by the permission of the king, through an edict, a counter edict, that Mordecai and Esther wrote and sent out, the Jews stood and defended themselves. And 800 men and on two days in Susa, including the 10 sons of Haman, and 75,000 people. On the, on the 13th day, one day, died who had risen up against God's people, and it was God's people who remained, and it was their enemies who were destroyed. It was Haman who hung on the gallows he built, and Haman who had boasted about his sons, about his wealth, and about his possessions, lost his sons, lost his wealth, and lost his palace and his place. And all of those things, save the sons, were given to Mordecai. <laughs> it's like, dang, God, though unnamed, is working all these things 
together. There are just so many coincidences, so many reversals, and so many parallels that we find elsewhere in the Old Testament. And I think we'll get to that. But that clearly, God is the one who is working all these things together. So mm. that so providence and promise. That's a long way to say that. Oh, that's helpful though. Uh, thank you for elaborating on those two preaching themes that you were able to identify providence and promise. Um, the next question is somewhat related and hopefully important when we have a conversation about preaching from the Bible, from the Christian scriptures. Um, what were some ways that you preached Jesus through Esther and um, how can we see Jesus uh, using the book of Esther and all of the canon of scripture? Yeah, um, that's a good question. It's like not only, I mean, clearly Jesus is not mentioned explicitly in this Old Testament book, but not only is Jesus not mentioned, but God himself um, is not mentioned by name or title or, or even the religious ceremonies that we find in the book of Esther are almost stripped of their religious significance. When they fast and they lament, it doesn't say that they pray. When they talk about Purim, it doesn't say that they're thankful and grateful to God, even though that might be true, but it's not mentioned. God is at work in the background throughout the entire book of Esther, but his name is not mentioned. So how, how do you begin to preach Christ about him? And I, I would say that if we were completely restricted to a historical grammatical approach and could not read it canonically, and and in light of the history of redemption and utilize other texts to clarify what is being said, then we we really would be lost in preaching Esther. All that you could get out of Esther is just pure moralism. And even then, that's complicated because, I mean, the characters in Esther are not always the people that you want to follow. And at the same time, they aren't completely bad to where there aren't some traits that you could could emulate. There are things, good qualities about them, but it's a very complicated moral book. I mean, there's a lot going on, and to try and preach morals from the book of Esther, I think you're you're going to be led down a lot of bad paths, or or at least you're going to be unfaithful to the text, because I don't think that Esther was written for us to derive morals from. Um, that being said, how how can we see Christ throughout the book of Esther? Well, we can play off of the theme of providence and promise, both themes, um, because Jesus is what is ultimately promised. It is to Jesus that the covenant of the Old Testament ultimately lead. It is to bring about the Messiah through whom all the nations would be blessed. There are other elements um, such as, I mean, you have royalty. So you have kind of like a counter example of, of Jesus in King Ahasuerus. He is the king of the world empire. He rules, he's selfish. Um, he, he's outwitted almost at every turn. He, he is self-indulgent. Whereas Jesus kind of serves as a counter example of what a true and a good and powerful king is. And that is he is a king who's not merely self-interested, but is willing to give himself for his people. 
he is one who who is not self-indulgent but shares of his blessings and of his benefits and of his rewards with those who are his people um so i mean you'd have to go to each chapter to figure out exactly in each section to figure out exactly where we see jesus but i mean he he is there and and we through careful interpretation and and prayer can faithfully lead our people to see how this text points to christ i mean you have some typology in in mordecai and es esther that that do seem to lend a a reading by which we see them pointing to christ i mean esther mediated on behalf of her people before Ahasuerus in a similar way, but obviously different. This is an analogy. So, I mean, there's overlap, but there will be differences. But Jesus intercedes and mediates on behalf of his people before the king of the universe. Um, so, there's a way that we see Jesus. Um, and really, I mean, just the themes of reversals. I mean, what is the greatest reversal in the Bible? I mean, it's it's that salvation comes through the judgment of the Redeemer. On one day, he is dead, and on the third day, he rose from the grave. And what we thought might be his end led actually to that great salvation that he accomplished. And there are reversals throughout everywhere in the book of Esther. And then one theme I just finished on Sunday, this past Sunday, that that we see at the end is this theme continued celebration. And I don't think anyone would disagree that that in a way similar to the Jews celebrating Purim every year, we have ample reason to celebrate both spontaneously and formally what Jesus has accomplished. And one of the themes and applications I drew out was the time in which we formally celebrate what the Lord Jesus has done is in the corporate assembly by observing the Lord's day and partaking of the means of grace. And that, and, and by doing that, obviously we're, we're pointing to Jesus and the book points to Jesus in that way. We celebrate salvation and what greater salvation is there than that one which Jesus accomplished? I mean, we, there are so many. I mean, he's going to judge all his enemies. I mean, just just as Haman met destruction for rising up against the people of God, so the same thing will happen to all those who rise up against the church of Jesus Christ and their Lord. At the end of days, they will all meet destruction. And, and so, I mean, that's just a scatterbrained, hitting it with a scattergun of where we can see and think about how Jesus is proclaimed even in the book of Esther. Hmm. Well, I mentioned in our conversation before we started recording that I think that uh, you're a pretty obscure guy, and because of that, you like to uh, do obscure things like preaching through obscure books of the Bible that perhaps are not as uh, popular level or commonly preached through, and uh, I think your desire to preach through Esther is an example of this. And uh, praise God that you didn't have to come at the the book of Esther by yourself for the first time as the first interpreter through the book of Esther. So uh, what were some of the 
commentaries that were beneficial to you and commentaries that you would recommend for those who do want to preach through this book? So I would be a bad Baptist if I didn't say John Gill. Um, I use John Gill every week um, and, and utilized what he said. Um, another older commentary, Matthew Poole. I, I referred to Matthew Poole's commentary on Esther a lot. Karen Jobes, her, her, I think it's, I'm trying to remember what series that is from. It is the NIV application commentary by Karen Jobes. It's really helpful, really well thought out and, and help. And she does expose the reader to where Jesus is, is being proclaimed throughout the book on, on multiple occasions. Another one that I found helpful was, I'm, I'm going to butcher this guy's name, but <laughs> Ian Dugweed, um, he, and I think that's the Reformation expos or Reformed Expository Commentary Series. That one's pretty good. And then there, Christopher Ash, I believe, is the one who wrote this one. Yeah, Christopher Ash, Teaching Ruth and Esther from Text to Message. Now, that's a very simple book or it's a very simple commentary, but in terms of like homiletics and things like that, a very, very, very helpful source. I mean, it, it, it is immensely helpful in thinking through a preaching strategy. Even though I did not follow his strategy to a T, it, it was a very helpful book to get me started thinking about it. And another one is titled Inconspicuous Providence, The Gospel According to Esther. And that's by a guy named Brian Gregory. And that one was good. Um, the technical commentary for linguistics that I used was the World Bible Commentary. It's okay. I mean, it, it's not something that I felt the need to look at every single time. But if there's a puzzling translation issue and, or, or interpretive issue, I would often times refer to it. And then... I mean, use some good study Bibles too. I mean, those are helpful resources and it doesn't make you a bad pastor if you utilize a simple tool like a study Bible, like the Reformation study Bible or the ESV study Bible or the Biblical Theology study Bible by the NIV. That one's one that I found helpful in particular thinking about how, how does this point to Jesus? So those are the main ones that I utilized. As we now begin to bring this conversation closer to an end, I'll ask you what final encouragements do you have uh, about the book of Esther, preaching through the book of Esther, reading the book of Esther, and more specifically, why would you recommend that a pastor preach through the book of Esther to their congregation? So I'll start with that, that last question first. I think the book of Esther presents living in a fallen world in a way very similar to the way that we experience it now. Um, and I say that because oftentimes we do not witness God performing these, these overt, very public, very showy miracles. Instead, our experience of God in the world today seems to be this hidden providence that's just working things together. 
Um, and, and sometimes, like in the book of Esther, the people of God today can, can feel as if we're being carried adrift by the winds and the ways of the world and feel like we are captive to the world empire, which we know is not our home, but we, we are in exile, much like the Jews were during the, the period of time in which, which Esther discusses. Um, and I, I think that a lot of the feelings that the people of the time of the book of Esther are also shared by people nowadays. Um, also, we, we see the messiness <laughs> of living in a fallen world in the book of Esther. I mean, even the heroes in the story of Esther are not always the people that we would want to be like. I mean, for example, I mean, Mordecai and Esther both hide their Jewish identity at the beginning. Like they conceal it on purpose, which, which would require that they, they disobey dietary laws, all kinds of the Sabbath command and things like that. Um, moreover, I mean, Esther is a part of the harem and she does, she does things that would be required of a woman that's part of the king's harem. I mean, in fact, one of the reasons that the king selects her is because of things that she did with him. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not a, a, a very politically correct presentation of living in a fallen world. It, it states it with all the mess. Um, I, I don't think that the book is inviting us necessarily to condemn Esther or her actions. But then again, I don't think it's also requiring us to suspend all judgment. I think more of the times when I read the book, rather than judging horror or, or trying to, to excuse the acts of God's people, I, I was more just like, huh, <laughs> that's, that's interesting. And, and then thinking about, well, I mean, real life is, is oftentimes a lot more complicated and, and a lot of our approach to life is not so easily answered. There are ethical dilemmas that we face and questions and things like that, even though we have the word of God, even though God's law is written on our heart. And, and just because a situation is difficult doesn't mean that we, we are excused to act in an immoral way. But still, at the very least, we can read the book of Esther and see that, you know, living in a fallen world is complicated. So as a pastor preaching the book, um, it helped me to think graciously towards my people. Um, and, and it invited them also to think graciously towards their neighbors and really, really just be overwhelmed by the fact that they are so desperate in need and in need of God's grace. Um, because the days are evil, as Paul says, <laughs> and we live in those days. So, I mean, I think one of the main reasons a preacher should preach it is to provide encouragement for your people as they live in a time and in a place of a lot of uncertainty and a lot of turmoil and a lot of discord and confusion, division. I mean, I know that's a lot of general words to get at what, what the way, way of the world is now. But I mean, by reading the book of Esther, we, we can see that a lot of the problems we face today aren't completely novel. The people of God have faced them before and God was in control then and he's still in control now. 
and we can trust him and trust his promises, even when he's unnamed and even when his, his workings and his dealings are not overt or showy, we can just hold fast. And I think that's the encouragement that my people drew from it, or at least that's the feedback that I got. And then what encouragements from the book of Esther? I was kind of already alluding to it. I mean, God's working all things together. I mean, that's that Romans eight twenty eight. We we can harp on that all the time, um, but I like to because because it is a beautiful promise to know that God works all things together. Moreover, I mean things like if God is for us, who can stand against us? I mean, we we find that arise arise within the book of Esther. The enemies rose against God's people, and it was the enemies who hung upon their own pikes and died upon their own swords. So I mean, it God's people can take comfort in the fact that so long as they are part of the people of God, then their victory and their hope is secure because God and his promise will never be overcome by any of his enemies or their enemies. And and we have a redeemer who has secured all marvelous things for us and who will surely give them to us. And though that's not explicitly stated in the book of Esther, we know without a shadow of a doubt that one, it's pointed to, as well as here's the great thing, Esther is not the only book in the canon and, and we don't need to read it at the exclusion of all other books. I mean, we can go to the Joseph narrative where his brothers meant something for evil, but God willed it for good. We, we can go to the Daniel narrative and see an example of boldness, even in the face of death, and know that God still protected his people and protected his servants. And he'll do the same for all his people. Not even death can separate his people from the love that God has for them. And, and Esther is just one of many examples within scripture where you can encourage your people and be encouraged as one of God's people of God's minute and perfect and wise and powerful providence. And that would be some of the encouragements. And I mean, if, if you want more, my entire sermon series is online on the church Facebook page. So if you really want to see what I think about it, that's where you can go and find it more in depth. Hmm. We've been speaking with Pastor Jimmy Johnson, the pastor of Vista Baptist Church and my co-host of the Covenant podcast. Uh, Jimmy has talked with us about what led him to preach through the book of Esther. Some uh, He's given us a helpful breakdown of the book of Esther and at least how he divided it as an outline of preaching uh, through the book of Esther as a series Uh, He's talked about some of the preaching themes, namely providence and promise. He talked about some ways that he preached Jesus from this book. He gave us commentary recommendations and encouragements. Again, we hope this conversation is helpful and profitable to you, and we wish you grace and peace. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to The Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.